session with Dr. Farid Holakou. afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so we can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. So Monday night, I didn't have a show because of the Memorial Day holiday here in the United States. So Uh, We'll do the book review today. And so the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, I don't do many books of fiction. I always tell myself I want to do more. But uh, this one was recommended to me by a friend, Chelsea, and I do like the work of James Baldwin in general, so I wanted to read this one. So I'll, I'll read that this week and share it with you Monday night. James Baldwin's book, Giovanni's Room. All right, the book of the week for this week um, was Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. And so uh, I mentioned this last week that I picked this book. I wanted to read some of his work for a while, uh, but his books are on the longer side. So I chose this week to give myself a couple extra days, which I did, but it was still uh, very challenging and took almost all of my time to get it done. But I'm very happy that I did it, and I might talk some more about that as I did last week, just the process of it. But um, very happy I read this book because it was a very obviously lengthy when you say over a thousand pages, but in-depth look at the economic history of inequality. And uh, that was very important for me because I think when you look in today's world, and to my understanding and in my opinion, there's far more inequality than should in any way be justified or is okay when you have so many people living in poverty uh, without some of the basic needs and basic human rights, things like uh, the right to housing, food, health care, etc. And then others have so much wealth that they don't know what to do with it. And there's so much in our tax law and various aspects of life that benefit the wealthy on top of that it just seems very unfair and so i wanted to read this book because his work is very much focused on or especially this book is very much focused on trying to understand inequality in a historical sense because by understanding the history of inequality it gives us a better understanding of what's going on now and also some ideas and thoughts that can help us determine what we want to have in the future. Uh, So one of the terms he uses a lot is inequality regime. And so essentially, as he puts it, throughout history, there's always been great inequality, but at different times and different um, regions, it's been explained in different ways in the different inequality regimes. Why do we need some people to have so little and some to have so much? Uh, why must the laws, the rules be this way? 
And so he goes throughout the history of Europe, uh, looking at different types of societies to uh, India, Brazil, different countries. The focus is primarily Western culture, which he actually mentions. And in his previous book, Capital in 21st Century, he says that was one of the problems, that it was almost solely focused on Western uh, nations and regions. But in this book, he tried to add other countries, nations as well, including China, Russia. Um, there was even a section on Iran. I was very excited to read that <clears throat> um, about how Iran has evolved in an economic standpoint. But what's important to point out is that when we see the history of inequality, it makes us understand that inequality is not something that has to exist or something natural or something unavoidable which is very often the way people talk about or think about inequality. And from a psychological perspective, one of the things I think applies here is that we don't like to have cognitive dissonance, or especially we don't like to believe that we live in an unfair world. So there's a psychological concept called a need for a just world, meaning that it's comforting or we almost feel this need and people can differ on how strongly they feel this way, to feel that we live in a fair world. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. So if something bad happened to someone, then there must have been some reason, something they did. And you might notice we do this. You find out about some thing that happened to someone or someone who's suffering, and very often you quickly will go to try to figure out, well, what did that person do to deserve that? And actually, it's a topic I might cover in a different way today because of so many stories in the news, heartbreaking stories of African-Americans in the United States just recently having um, issues with the police, including being killed by the police. And very often in these cases, the first reaction is, well, what did he or she, more than often he, but what did he do to quote-unquote deserve that? which is heartbreaking because someone's life was lost and we're somehow finding a way to blame them. And so in a broader scale, people are being disadvantaged, people are being hurt, there's oppression, but we try to find reasons to explain why rather than recognizing that the system is wrong, something's not okay. Because one, it doesn't feel good to have that feeling that the world is not fair, and two, then we can't avoid that and we'd have to do something about it. So if something is unfair and you know that, it makes it very hard for you just to live with that and accept it. But if you can find some way to justify it, to explain it away, it makes it a lot easier for you to just accept the status quo, not feel any guilt or responsibility, and just let things be. And so we see that throughout society, including things like slavery. I've talked about this before, how we, we have to be aware of people with beautiful words because beautiful words have been used to defend ugly stupid and horrible ideas throughout history and it continues so we have to be mindful that just because something is eloquently said or sounds very smart uh, the idea can be very stupid and immoral and so you see that in people defending slavery throughout history as something right or just or even that they're doing a favor to the people they've enslaved by somehow quote-unquote uh, civilizing them or giving them um, some kind of benefits in a religious sense or whatever it might be really incredibly bogus arguments that were made to defend horrif horrible uh, violations of human rights and oppression but we see it throughout history and so that point is one that we don't want to lose on today's society sometimes it's easy to look back at 
colonialism or slavery and think, wow, things were so backwards there. I can't believe people could accept that or be okay with that. But then you have to ask yourself, what about today? What can I see that's un not okay or I don't want to see? Or what would people look back on during our time period and think, how did they accept that or how was that considered okay? And so to me, the great inequality, which has risen in the past few decades around the world, including in countries like the United States, is one of these issues that we should not accept or be okay with. And so reading the book gives you this historical context of how things became the way they were. And he talks about switch points, uh, periods in time where things could have gone one or multiple different ways, but it went one way and it could be good to understand that. But it also makes us recognize there isn't this determined path of history or that the way that things are aren't the way they first of all always been or the only way they could have been, which also tells us that the future can go many different paths and it's not predetermined in some way. We're going to create the future, which will become someday's history, and it's up to us to determine how we want that to look and what direction we want it to go. Um, so, uh, you know, when you look at different periods of time and sometimes you're shocked that slave owners, uh, when slavery was ending, and he talks about this in the context of how we uh, sac make pr private property sacrilegious or we make it something so important that it's the most important thing uh, to the point where when slavery ended in various regions of the world, the slave owners were compensated for their quote-unquote loss of property, which is just mind-boggling. Someone has been a slave, has been uh, working for free, treated horribly, oppressed in the most extreme form, and when we finally come to realize how wrong that is and stop it, we actually feel like the slave owners should be the ones compensated. And this happened throughout history, and it seems that in the United States this probably didn't happen because so much damage was already done by the Civil War that it seemed like that was basically the cost enough that we didn't have to compensate slave owners who were, again, quote-unquote, losing their property, property that they obviously never should have been able to own because no one person should own another person. But this is... Uh, explaining or it could be explained by how much we've made private property in, in different parts of history, different times in history, something so important that the slave owner is the victim in some way when they lose um, a, a slave. It's just unbelievable. And so reading that was quite uh, eye-opening for me, but also it did make some sense when we look at how things are in the world and how we still have so much of a uh, value given to pri property, private property, that if someone owns something, they own it and it's theirs, not realizing how everything is developed in a social way. And I won't get too deep into economic theory. It's not my expertise uh, and it's not something that I could explain well enough. The book does a great job of that and explains different aspects of different types of economies and how they function throughout history. Um, but a few points I'll, I'll make before I wrap up talking about the book. Um, so as I mentioned, there has been a rise in his mind of capitalism and hyper-capitalism leading to more inequality throughout the world, including in the United States. And that's partially many things, including the fall of uh, communism, which he discusses in different parts of the book. This likely has led to disillusionment with the idea that we can have more equality 
in an economic sense because this experiment, the communist experiment, did not work out. And so it made many people, even people on the left, become more disillusioned or lose hope in the idea that we can create equality in an economic sense. And also let me make it clear, equality doesn't mean everyone has exactly the same, but let's say less inequality or less extreme forms of inequality. So likely the fall of communism gave even more fuel and weight to the capitalistic mindset and way of doing things, which we see continues. And that's why we've seen a huge increase in inequality since the 1980s in most countries, including in the United States. Uh, which is quite heartbreaking to see how extreme it has become. And also, as he explains, very often people are who are against taxing the very wealthy uh, at, at high levels, let's say 70, even 80, 90 percent, will say this is going to be bad for the economy. You can't have growth if you do that. Um, but as he points out and shows in the book, some of the highest periods of growth in the world happening in the post-World War II era were during times of progressive taxation that was very high. And so it busts this myth that you can't have high taxes on the wealthy and growth at the same time. Quite the contrary, and actually when you uh, do not taper some of the aspects of capitalism, it's going to lead to bigger problems down the line. So the book for me was very interesting to understand the complexity of history itself, but of course, economic history, how things have gone, um, but also how they could have been different. Because if we don't recognize that things are not just predetermined, uh, sometimes um, people will say things like, uh, it has to be this way, there has to be this type of inequality, uh, it's natural, things like this, which none of them make sense, but again, they're ways of trying to justify the injustices that exist in the world. But when you read a book like this, it gives you more of a broader picture to see that it doesn't have to be this way. It wasn't always the way we think it always was, and we can make it um, different. You know, I'm realizing, of course, the book, there's some more things I did want to talk about. Uh, of course, in a, a book of this length, you know, even a few hours wouldn't be enough to summarize it or get into it. So I'll talk more about the book after the break. Again, it's Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacquia. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. I wanted to continue the discussion on the book Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. Highly recommend the book. It's wonderful uh, you know, work that he put. Obviously, so much time in his work is in, inequality, in uh, research on inequality, but um, I might talk a bit about it later. The appreciation in general, when I read the books I read, I always appreciate the work that people put into sharing their ideas and putting them in a form that can be um, disseminated and people can read it. But in this case, I felt it even more that you recognize he took on a big effort to look at the whole history of inequality from an economic historical perspective to help us better understand what's been going on and hope for a better future, which also near the end of the book, he does explain some of his ideas of what we can do or what he proposes, which he mentions in a uh, humble way, 
it's not that he has the solutions, but here are some of his ideas that would be up for debate and deliberation for us to determine what would be the best way to go forward. Um, but going back a bit, looking at inequality, which of course we don't have to go back to look at inequality because it exists so strongly today in so many perspectives, including the economic one. Uh, my father, during the commercial break, came in and we we're talking about slavery and how even the reasons for it ending very often were not moral ones or human rights issues. It was more actually economic and various factors that were at play in the United States. It was very complicated by many factors as well. But uh, we often see that it was less about the people because a lot of people felt it was okay. And again, it can be hard for us to justify that or uh, try to understand how they justified that. And that's how he talks about these inequality regimes and how there's always some type of ideology, that's the one of the obviously words in the title, to try to explain what's going on. Uh, but I hope again we'll think of now, and if someone could please explain to me how here in the United States a child can be homeless, I would be really interested to hear your explanation as to why that's okay in a country with so much wealth, with some people with uh, even hundreds of billions or talks of getting into the trillions of dollars in one individual, how that can be okay that a, a child is homeless. And if you're a parent, I hope you will look at your own child and I hope if you're listening, you are somewhere where they are good and safe and taken care of. And imagine some other child born just somewhere else to some other family and is in so much poverty they're living on the streets, might not have food, medicine, and, and to think if that's fair. Your wonderful, beautiful child that you have in front of you deserves all of those things that uh, he or she has, but so does every other child in the world. And especially when we have the means to give that to every child in the world, we should be embarrassed and ashamed that we allow for this to happen. And so I know I'm as complicit as anyone listening. It's not that I've made some changes in this regard, but it is something that I bring up so that we challenge ourselves not to do what we tend to do, which is to try to just say, well, this is how it is. There's some reason for it. Not everyone could blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's fair. Maybe it's based on this. Maybe it's that. And look at the inhumanity of what we're doing or allowing to happen. These things are not okay. How will we explain to the future generations that we tolerated this and somehow explained it away? Uh, one of the ways it is explained that he talks about in the book in the current uh, evaluation of why things are the way they are, almost have to be, is what can be called a meritocracy or a meritocratic argument that by merit, people who are wealthy, they've done good things. They've worked hard, have an entrepreneurial spirit. And because of that, they're successful. So success in the economic sense is not some arbitrary or unfair thing. It's based on hard work. And so people who have worked hard become successful. And so if someone has $50 billion, it's because they've worked harder and smarter than the rest of us, uh, which is a very convenient argument to just explain away what's going on, but doesn't hold a lot of water uh, from many different facets, including even if you say it's about how hard you work, which there's so much that really makes that seem very implausible, that that explains what we're, we're observing. But on top of that, there's not even equal opportunity in a country like the United States on various factors, including education. 
one of the very heartbreaking things for me is that when I work with children in different backgrounds, you see that based on where they live, their public schools, of course, private schools adds even more to that, but their public schools are very different as far as the resources that they um, are receiving. And I can't explain that either, that if we're living in a country and we want every child to get education, why would the quality of their education be so severely impacted by uh, where they live? Again, I, I don't agree with the meritocracy to say that the adults who are homeless deserve to be homeless at all, but some people might have a harder time accepting that. But when we talk about children who are just born and through no fault of their own are given a much less chance of being successful in, in various ways, we have to really consider that. Why are children in poorer neighborhoods attending worse schools? Education can be a great equalizer in a lot of ways, but not if we have unequal education, which is clearly the case. Uh, he talks about it in France, his own home country. This is Thomas Piketty, the author of the book, Capital and Ideology. But here in the United States, it's very significant. On top of trying to get into universities here in the United States is very much impacted by the level of wealth of your parents for a variety of reasons from the school you went to to the type of preparation that you get um, to the different types of courses you can take to prepare you for college to the, even the consultants and various things to of course parents making donations to different universities so we see that there's a very strong correlation between wealth and access to education and even the type of education that you receive. Something that I think is unacceptable, but we've just in a way accepted as like, oh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, the, the schools in the poor neighborhoods are worse schools are not as good. I'm not sure to me how we can explain that that's fair if we want to make things more fair. Uh, and related to actually saying you know, things are, are fair, sometimes another one of these arguments people use in a more general sense is they'll say, well, the world's not fair when you bring up something. And I, of course, if you've listened to me talk for this last half hour, I, of course, don't think the world is fair as far as so many things that are going on in the world. Um, but that's not the end of the discussion. The world is not fair, yet our role as human beings, as citizens of the world, is to make it more fair. Will we ever achieve perfect justice and fairness for every human being? Probably not. But of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to make it more fair and more just. So going to the space of, well, it's just not, the world's not fair, is a very uh, easy way out of actually facing the real problem, the real challenges, and the real injustices that are going on. We can't go there. That's an easy way out, and I don't think we should allow ourselves that way out. We have to face the reality of what's happening. So we see this inequality in the United States, and as I mentioned, uh, meritocracy is a big way we try to justify that. Well, you know what? These people are contributing more, they've worked harder, uh, all of which really is bogus and can be explained away in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, again, at the end of the book, he does share some of his thoughts of what we can do, which, um, of course, I can't get into all of them at length, but it does include very uh, strong and high progressive taxes, and as he mentions throughout the book, even though people say this is going to kill growth and kill prosperity, we've seen throughout history that this is not the case. It doesn't have to be that way. To have a progressive income tax, a progressive wealth tax, is not something that will kill the economy uh, by any means. And as he describes it, it actually is going to kill the economy or leads to issues if we don't 
uh, make things more balanced. And, and even what we've seen happen in the 2008 crisis and then with COVID and how we've responded to it, I think it's shown some of the structural cracks we have in our system that we think everything is okay and good, but it can handle things when things go wrong, which itself, first of all, might lead to things going wrong, but it shows that there are some weaknesses, inefficiencies, deficiencies in the system. So uh, he highly advocates a progressive tax, which is very um, high for the highest earners. Um, and also things like a capital endowment, meaning that each individual one time in their life, he says probably at the age of 25, would receive essentially like a lump sum, which the way he had proposed it, which again, is, he says it's not set in stone, would be 60% of the average wealth of an individual adult. Uh, and also on top of that, a, a, a universal income, which would be 60% of the uh, income of the average adult. And so a lot of things he mentions can seem revolutionary or too extreme. And he puts that he mentions that they might seem that way. But he says and explains that they don't necessarily have to be seen that way when we look at what's happened throughout history and we look at how things are going to go forward and how they'll work. He also mentions, I thought it was really interesting, the point that we sometimes think of economics and money as the end and that's it. That's the only thing that matters. But he talks about how trade and things like the economic system should actually be the means to get to the end of more justice, of more equality, of things being more okay that if trade is just promoting more inequality or if the way the economic system is working is making things more unequal and unfair, it's like we have things backwards. The system is supposed to serve everyone. And to me, I've always thought, and I'm not the, obviously the first person to think this way, that when we evaluate any society, including any economic system, we should look at not just things like growth and GDP and those types of things, but more importantly, things like economic inequality and how the least advantaged or the most disadvantaged members of society are treated by the society and taken care of. That to me is most important when we evaluate an economy, evaluate a system, evaluate a society. And I was thinking about this before I came on the air, this um, mindset of being um, uncivilized that we sometimes describe when we talk about certain groups uh, and, and that was justified, let's say, for slavery or colonialism and how it's funny that we can think that other people are uncivilized um, because of the way they live their life, but we can be so unfair in how we do things and that we don't take care of certain people at all and, and they are actually suffering and we leave them behind, yet we think we're so quote-unquote civilized because of technology or whatever it is that we tell ourselves to fool ourselves that we are living in this uh, civilized way, which I think is really uh, unfortunate. So the book is a great contribution, in my opinion, to economic thinking and understanding and history. It gives you a perspective, of course, a lot of it was new to me, perspective of the world and history and economics that I didn't quite understand and grasp. It, it points to how stark the inequalities are we're living at. I'm not going to get into a lot of the statistics or really any of them right now with just a minute or two, but of how extreme the inequalities are that we're living in currently that just don't make sense. And how the bottom 50%, for example, in a country like the United States 
can't really own anything as far as property goes. And we just think, well, that's the way it is. But why does it have to be this way? And so in looking at the history of what's happened, it's also an invitation to try to think about what we can do now and what we can do differently in the future. And that we can shape our world to be more fair, more just. It's not out of our hands. It's not natural for things to be unfair or for there to be so much inequality. It definitely does not have to be this way. And so I highly recommend uh, this book, uh, or at least you know, look at the ideas that he expresses. Thomas Piketty, the book is Capital and Ideology. Um, if you do read it, let me know what you think. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first two segments, I talked about the book Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty, which talks about the, well, so many things, but the history of inequality in economics. That's one of the overarching themes of the book and also how we can potentially go forward but after understanding this history to create a more just world, to create a more fair world for everyone. Uh, and I think it's a, a very important work and I'm happy that I read it because I, of course, was um, someone who, as many people, did not agree with the inequality that exists, but it's important to understand it better so that we can, one, first of all, understand what's going on to help create change, but also when we learn things about the issues, we get more power to do more. We can actually help create more change the more we understand. I might talk about that later on, but I wanted to talk about another topic which is very uh, intimately connected to this one when it comes to equality, including issues related to historical and economic uh, equality here in the United States. And that is the case of George Floyd. Now, I wasn't sure I would talk about it today because I just heard of it last night and didn't get to do a lot of research into all of the details. So uh, full disclosure, I have to say that, but uh, I saw the video where you see George Floyd on the ground uh, it's about a 10-minute video. Of course, it's a little bit graphic as far as you're seeing him suffering. And, and by the end of the video, he becomes unresponsive. You see that there's four police officers that they say were involved. You see two of them very clearly. And one, the most clearly, who has his neck, uh, sorry, his knee on George Floyd's neck. And you, he's apparently handcuffed, but this guy won't take, the police officer won't take his knee off of his neck. And you hear him start saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Uh, and eventually he becomes um, unresponsive. You don't see him moving and an ambulance comes, uh, takes him away and he later dies. And it's just heartbreaking. I watched it last night and um, I had tears in my eyes, but I was also angry and it's just so sad. And to be honest, there are of course so many cases like this in the news here in the United States similar to this, that just a few weeks ago I wanted to talk about Ahmad Aubrey, the case of this young man who was jogging, uh, and he was eventually confronted by two men, father, son, and shot to death. And he apparently, from what they said later on, went to look at a construction site and walked in, and they thought that was linked somehow, they said, to robbery and all sorts of bogus things. Again, trying to justify the injustice, something wrong happened, someone's life was lost, and then there's a reason why it was, uh, you know, justifiable or maybe okay. 
And the way I would hear this story was crazy about Ahmad Aubrey is that he was confronted by these two men, I believe, holding the shotguns in their hands. And then people would say when they were in defense of the, the shooters would say, well, why didn't he stop and talk to them? which is just so crazy. If I was running and some guy came up to me with a gun, I would run faster away, actually, uh, if I could, or I don't know what I would do, but I don't think I would think, oh, let me talk to these people and have a conversation to the people that are approaching me. And, and who even has the right to come up to someone with a gun just because they're running, even if you say, which could be very bogus, you suspected they could have been involved in some kind of burglary and you wanted to do a citizen's arrest. Anyway, it, it's just crazy. So, um, but what I was gonna say related to that is that I thought the same thing, I need to read more about it. And then there's just been case after case, which has happened a lot, but recently more of them have come out that have really grabbed more public attention. Um, and it, there's almost too many of them to get into, which is so heartbreaking that there are so many stories like this of people being killed by the police or by other people um, that are African-American. And so when we talk about inequality, and if you live in the United States, you can't avoid looking at and talking about and thinking about the experience of African-Americans in the United States. Now, I, of course, don't know what it's like and should give that as a kind of um, precaution before I get into things that I'm going to share some thoughts I have on it. But as someone who's privileged to not have to experience what someone who's African-American goes through in the United States. But I also feel that it's important that I'm not silent and others are not silent about these issues. So I will share some of my thoughts and almost definitely on Monday's show, I'll, I'll get into it some more as well after some more reflection and um, studying what, what has happened in these cases to have a better understanding when I am talking about it. Uh, but, you know, related to the Ahmad Aubrey case, and when we try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, I had an interesting moment last night. So last night I stayed at my office to finish reading the book, which I have mentioned many times was a longer book. So I needed to put more time into it. And I said, let me go for a walk, a little break around 10 p.m. Um, I'll go for a walk and come back and finish the last part of the book. So I go for a walk and I saw a car dealership that was open, or not open, but open as far as the, it was uh, outside. And I thought, oh, maybe I can walk through and look at some of the cars there. And I had this moment where I realized uh, Ahmad Aubrey, in his case, he went to look at a construction site that seems like innocently, as many people do, just curious to see what's there. And potentially that contributed to him dying, him losing his life. And I had this realization and it made me uh, feel a whole rush of feelings of, you know, I know I've, I'm not doing anything, but I also know I would not have to worry about this because of the color of my skin that I could probably walk around in there and it'll be fine. But not everyone is given that privilege or given that comfort that people experience very different things living in the same country because of something which should be as meaningless as the color of their skin. But that's really the reality. And as I mentioned earlier, talking about the book, we don't want to, or I think we would be wrong to, try to look away or justify or just explain it as something fair that makes this happen. It is not okay. It is not fair. Uh, here in the United States, when you look at our jails, 
the percentage that is African-American is so disproportionate. I don't have the numbers on me, but a great book on this topic is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander that I read a few years ago, I think even before I was doing books on the show. So I might do that again, that book, or read it again. Um, but when you look at the number of people in jail, it's disproportionately African-American. And then people's first reaction is like, well, they're doing more things wrong to go into jail. But she talks about things like drug use and abuse in the United States, where you see equal usage between blacks and whites, but you see way more unbelievably disproportionate amount of arrests for people who are African-American for these same issues. Um, that's obviously something huge, the, the prison system. When you look at even looking for a job, so one of the issues when you look at racism or uh, issues related to different groups being discriminated is that people will say, well, here in the United States, there's no laws. There, you know, there's a civil rights movement and so much progress. There's no laws against African-Americans anymore. So if you do see, let's say, more poverty, or if you do see someone is not as successful, you can't blame the laws anymore because the laws are all fair. Well, the laws can be fair, but if there's still racism in a society and there's systemic racism, it doesn't mean things are actually fair. For example, if you uh, send in a job application and same resume, same CV with for an African-American versus a white person, there's been many studies showing that the white a potential employee is much more likely to get a call to have an interview. So again, it's not just it has to be in the law. People make choices, they make decisions that affect people's lives that don't have to be technically part of the legal system, but have huge legal, financial, uh, and real life implications for the experiences of individuals. So um, I hope that if you live in the United States to ignore or not be aware of the reality of racism, which exists for many groups, but so strongly for the African Americans, is really to turn a blind eye towards injustice, which I think we never should do. We have to face the injustices that are there as uncomfortable as they are, as much as we don't know even sometimes what to do or what we can do or feel like the issue is so big we can't do anything about it. But I hope people listening to the show, uh, whatever background you are, that you recognize the experience of people who are oppressed in every region, every way that it can be experienced or people are experiencing it. And specifically right now with what's going on in the United States, or not, I should say right now, it's been happening, um, to realize the reality of people who are suffering for no other reason than the color of their skin. And I want to say we're better than that because I know we are as a society, but we have a lot of work to do to actually show that. It's not enough to just think we're better than that. We have to make that a reality. Um, and so when you see this video, again, it's uh, heartbreaking, but also hard to see. Uh, you'll see George Floyd on the ground and the police officer just, I mean, it's like if you just get the sense he doesn't care about his life. And so I remember when, uh, now it's been several years, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't know all the details, but I know it's a complicated issue about what happened with the, the organization itself. But even just that, that slogan or statement that first started trending of Black Lives Matter. And then it was met with the response of, well, all lives matter. And people would defend that 
and say, well, don't all lives matter in a very, of course, loaded way? Because yes, of course, all lives matter. And actually, that's what Black Lives Matter, the movement was saying, was that essentially Black Lives Matter too. That actually the experience of many African-Americans and what they're seeing in their own lives and what they see happening to people is that their lives are being shown not to matter. They can die and there are no consequences to the person who kills them or it somehow seems it's justified or okay. So uh, I know for a lot of people, I would hear those reactions that, well, black lives matter. Don't all lives matter or shouldn't it be everyone? Why are they in a way some kind of reverse racism or being prejudiced themselves? And that's missing completely the point of what they were talking about and what they're talking about and we all should be talking about is that, yes, all lives matter. And that's why when we feel that black lives are not given that same importance, we have to point it out. It, it shouldn't, there should never have to have been a Black Lives Matter movement because they should have mattered as much as everyone else's lives. That's actually what we should pay attention to more than thinking uh, it, it's somehow discriminatory against other people. It's that they were being discriminated against that they had to have that type of a um, statement made anyway. So let's say, for example, women were not allowed to vote, which is obviously brought up in this book a lot, but was the case in many countries, even until a few years ago in the Middle East, but um, even in America in the 20th century. And someone says, women deserve to vote. And then someone else says, well, doesn't everyone deserve to vote? And they're like, yes, of course, everyone deserves a vote. That's why we're saying women deserve to vote. But right now they're not given that, which is why we're fighting for it. So when someone says Black Lives Matter, it's because there are so many instances where people's lives who are black are being shown not to matter or not matter enough. And so we see cases like this time and again, and people will tell you, uh, one of the arguments you also hear is like, oh, you know, there's race baiting or they're trying to make race an issue or how come all these cases are coming out now? Uh, well, first of all, they've been coming out throughout history, but there wasn't videos a lot of time. And we know how much how easy it is to cover something up and make it seem even more like it was the victim's fault. And there's been so many cases of corruption related to that. Um, when there isn't any kind of footage or any evidence of what's taken place. But because of the access to things like smartphones where everyone now has uh, the ability to take photographs and videos in the palm of their hands, we're seeing a lot more footage of the injustices. So it, it's not that it wasn't happening before or that this is something new. It's been happening for a long time, but we now have more evidence of it. And we, again, we can't look away from this evidence. We're talking about people's lives. Uh, in the Ahmad Aubrey case, imagine your 25-year-old son wants to go out for a run and you think, is he going to die on this run? Just because he wants to look into, let's say, construction site and people want to confront him and follow him essentially it was like they hunted him down it's 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 horrible it's horrific and can you imagine that do you ever think that when your son or daughter wants to go for a run that maybe they'll die not from anything they've done but just because people are suspicious of them um, and so tying this back into the, the book of course there's so many issues that come up when we look at something like race and racism in a country uh, the economic issues are also involved. And so African-Americans have been severely disadvantaged from an economic standpoint, of course, starting in, with slavery. And then even when they came out of slavery, there was things like Jim Crow laws and various laws that made them be severely disadvantaged in, in trying to 
um, get work and become successful in a financial sense and just live their lives. And the civil rights movement in the United States was in the 1960s, where finally laws were enacted to make things as fair as possible. But still, in just a legal sense, it doesn't mean that's a reality for the existence of people uh, who are living in America. And so these inequalities and injustices persist in the United States. And of course, the economic uh, issue or aspect of it is very related to things like how African Americans are treated and perceived in various ways. So there's an interconnectedness in all of this. And so we need to move towards a more overall sense of justice. I think economic justice will be a big part of that, um, but also shifting the way that we or shifting our perspective and what we allow to happen and what we think is okay. So I urge you to watch the videos if you are okay with watching them. Again, just a little bit of a disclaimer that they're not easy to see, the one of George Floyd, but there's so many cases. It's heartbreaking that it's hard to keep track of the number of cases that are coming up and coming out. Uh, even though with coronavirus, we thought things had slowed down, but racism and these types of uh, attacks on black lives are still happening. So please uh, educate yourself, inform yourself. I know it's not pleasant to look at these things, but imagine how unpleasant it is to go through it. Imagine what people who are experiencing it go through. We can't turn a blind eye to that. And so I was heartbroken, and I'm sure I'll talk more about um, this case on Monday night's show, but couldn't neglect to at least share something today uh, about George Floyd and so many other victims here in the United States who are African-American who unfairly have lost their lives. It's truly heartbreaking. Um, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. So the first two segments, I talked about the book Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty, where he um, discusses the history of inequality and inequality regimes throughout history from a historical and economic standpoint. And in the last segment, I talked about some of the experiences that individuals in the United States, African-Americans experience um, brought about by the case of George Floyd or brought um, to me wanting to talk about it today, who was killed by the police uh, in a very gruesome way, gruesome as in it was so inhumane, you see the police officer with his neck, uh, I said that again backwards, his uh, knee on his neck, and he's George Floyd is saying, I can't breathe. And he continues, of course, it brings up memories of Eric Garner, who also is saying, I can't breathe, um, while he was in a chokehold by police, and he also died as well. And so um, I brought that up in the context of looking at the injustices in our world, and hopefully here in the United States, if you are whether you're African-American or not, I hope you take this as a serious issue that involves you or that you should be involved in and doing something about. And so what I wanted to do, as I alluded to this in the last segment, is now talk about how, um, of course, the suffering of the African-Americans should get more time, and I'll talk about it more on Monday's show, as I mentioned. But I also wanted to add that as people who do care, whatever it is you care about, um, we have a responsibility and there is a responsibility to first of all do something so you'll see that and i've seen a lot of my friends posting things that uh, we can't be silent about this we have to do something about 
what's going on. We can't just let this happen. And I think that's very true. And so uh, first we have to do something about what's going on or do whatever we can right now. And actually, uh, when we feel strong things about these injustices, as I was mentioning in a few of the segments today, we have a reaction because it doesn't feel good to try to justify the injustice. Somehow this is okay. Somehow it could be explained. Maybe this is just the way it is, the way it always had to be. Something is fair that maybe I don't get. And, and we do a lot of mental gymnastics uh, to try to find a way to make it make sense. Because we try to get rid of that feeling, that anger, that pain, that sadness, the indignation that we might feel when we see something unjust. It can feel like too much or feel like a lot and we try to get rid of it. And as I mentioned in the last segment, if that doesn't feel good to you, imagine what it would feel like if that was you or your family member, or if you were a member of that community where you didn't feel safe uh, the way that you get to feel yourself. Imagine that feeling rather than just the feeling of thinking about that. Um, and so uh, a phrase came to my mind that we, in a way, try to get rid of those feelings. So we try to lose that feeling. But we want what I wanted to say is don't try to lose that feeling, use that feeling. Meaning that when you feel that anger, uh, as I always talk about with negative emotions, when we try to get rid of them, they're actually giving us information. So that anger you're feeling, it's because something's not right. This is unfair. This is unjust. Uh, injustice is unjust. We should do something about it. And rather than try to get rid of that feeling, lose that feeling, we should use it towards doing something. Because those are in a way are two broader options. One is to try to just cope with the feeling and get rid of it. How can I either justify this, make it feel like, no, actually it's okay, or distract myself or numb myself from what's going on. That's one thing to try to lose the feeling. Or we can try to use the feeling, meaning that we help it fuel our actions. I'm angry, I'm gonna do something about it to make it right. Because anger is in a way a response to something unfair. Um, and, Usually we think of it as something being unfairly done to us, but of course it can be to others when we feel uh, indignation to, and about the injustices that other people experience, which we could say is also probably related to our ability to put ourselves in their shoes. But still, even if it's not us, we can feel angry. So I hope people will hold on to those feelings, which can sound strange to say, well, hold on to anger, hold on to uh, that sadness that you feel. Yes, because you're gonna use that to fuel the actions that you can take to make things more right. Because that's another way to make the feeling go away or become better, is to actually try to make things right. It's similar to when we feel compassion, which is also something that probably comes up in this uh, mix of feelings you're gonna feel when you feel angry. It's partially because you feel compassion for the victim and for people like the victim who could suffer a similar fate or who might be uh, more affected by it because let's say you see that happening to someone and they look more like you you're more scared now that that can happen to you next so you're going to feel a lot of feelings but the compassion um, you're going to feel what happens is you feel something bad you see someone suffering and you feel bad and again this could be partially from our own mirroring and mirror neurons and how we relate to someone else but we feel that pain so to speak in a way and so when we feel that pain, it makes us want to do something about it. So let's say in a simple case, you see someone doesn't have water and they're so thirsty and you see them suffering, you feel something. And then the compassion makes you want to do something to make that feeling go away. 
So you bring them a glass of water and they drink the water and they're okay. And now that you see they're okay, your feeling you had inside of you that didn't feel good also goes away or feels better now because that issue has been taken care of. And so when it comes to these bigger issues like racism in the United States, uh, the treatment of police, uh, the, the treatment by police of African Americans, the way they are treated, of course, these are big issues that you're not going to solve as easily as giving someone a glass of water. And realistically, you're not going to solve them yourself or even in a group, maybe in your lifetime, who knows, but more than likely, it's going to take a long time. And so we have to be patient with that. But that also means we have to be willing to hold on to that negative feeling for a while, which to me, when it comes to the case of something like injustice, something is unfair, we should not lose that feeling. We need to hold on to it because that feeling is the information that's telling us something is not right. And it serves as the fuel to keep us going so we don't give up in fighting to making things right. So don't lose that feeling. Yourself and with your kids, uh, you might, your kids might hear about something like this or something unfair. And in general, parents, their quick response is to try to make their kids happy, feel good. So if they have a bad feeling, let's get rid of it. Whether it's something personal, something between them and you, something with their friends, something at school, uh, we jump in and try to make that feeling go away, which I'm against in all cases, but even in the case of injustice, uh, depending on your kids, of course, it's going to affect the type of conversation you have with them, the things you're going to get into, how detailed it gets, and, and various aspects related to that. But don't shy away from talking to your children about injustice. Uh, you know, parents always ask me, how can I make my kid more loving or kind or more charitable and caring about other people? And sometimes they want like a quick technique or answer. But the real solution to that is that it's a long-term process where you show your kids from a young age, first of all, through your own actions to be that way, to be a caring, loving person who cares about humanity, that um, cares about all people, sees people as equal, and doesn't want to put anyone above or below anyone else, including themselves. So first you have to live that way yourself, but also it's in the way you interact with your child. Constant conversations, how things come up, when someone is suffering, do you make it seem like they're bad or not good or deserve it? Or do you talk about what do you think it would feel like if that was you? Or what do you think you feel like if you were that kid? Um, what do you think that's like? And so you're constantly showing them and sharing with them this perspective taking and to have empathy for others, to care for others, to notice when things are unfair. And so if we come from the mindset that I've talked about a lot with the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, you don't want to make your kid upset. So you say they shouldn't know about things that are bad. And again, it does depend on their age, what you expose them to. But I would hope that parents would strive to raise a kind hearted citizen of the world who cares about other people. And that will involve at times exposing them to the injustices and things that might make them not feel so good in the moment that are happening in the world. We can't shelter them from that because we want them just to never feel bad. Kids are caring by their nature. They empathize by their nature. We sometimes take that away from them or don't cultivate it in them. But they have that in them when they see someone else. Even you see kids, they have something. Yes, of course, sometimes they're selfish with their toys, we can think, or they're holding on to things. But you see that they give to, to other kids. They give to you. They have that in them. And so as a parent, you need to cultivate that. And I hope you'll have conversations with them when something happens. And you know, yeah, it's, it's not fair. And the problem is that when we get to that point where something feels unfair or 
we uh, create that kind of conflict as far as the situation, it doesn't feel good and we try to make it okay. Oh, but you know what, they're, they're okay and it's going to be okay. Or, uh, oh, everyone's all right. Or, you know, they don't mind or something. Some way we try to get rid of that. And so I'm not saying you emphasize it and try to make your kids feel bad, but I would hope you actually let them sit with that feeling that maybe it's not good and what can we do about it and that actually could be a better direction again don't even have your child lose that feeling have them use that feeling yeah you know that does seem unfair what do you think what would be more fair what can we do what should we do to help make it more fair use the feeling don't try to lose the feeling in yourself or both in your child and so that part for me is very important that we as always use our feelings as information and when we see injustices where you're going to have an emotional reaction, and that's good, that's healthy. You should have a, an emotional reaction to injustice. That's, that's something good. Uh, sometimes we give too much praise or value to people who uh, are so cool and don't care about things. You know, we all want to be that way uh, in different degrees. Oh, you're worried about that? Oh, I don't even care. I'm fine. I'm not, I don't even worry about that. I do that all the time, and it doesn't even phase me. And there's a certain... Um, value we give to people for not caring about things for being so cool that they don't get affected by things for not being sensitive that's a big one to, because that could look like they're weak if you're not affected by things you're strong if you're affected by things you're weak well if there's injustice in the world and you're uh, not affected by it to me that's a sickness more than if you are affected by seeing injustice in the world and so you should strive to have kids who care about what's happening in the world and to have those conversations with them so the feelings you have when you see injustice they make sense and they're understandable acceptable and we should hold on to them and actually use them as the fuel because as i was mentioning before to make these bigger changes in the world it is going to be hard and a long process and you shouldn't think you're going to solve it and many of the things you're going to work towards you won't even see the fruits of your labor potentially or you might see some of the fruits but you won't see it fully resolved in your own lifetime and that's okay your role is not to solve the problem uh, you know i'm looking at the book in front of me and it's like you know you write a page or a word in that book that leads to justice. You don't have to necessarily write the final word or the final chapter. You might not get to be part of that, but at least do your part to continue to make things more fair and more just. And imagine looking back at your life and thinking you didn't do as much as you could have done to make things more fair. You can get, you can have a lot of regrets at the end of life for things you did, especially things you didn't do. Uh, as far as your love, relationships, different things like that. But one of the things you could definitely regret you didn't do is why didn't I do more to make the world a better place, to make the world more fair? I could have done more. And I'm speaking to myself as I say this. I could have done more so far. I can do more now. And I hope I will. And I will try to keep myself accountable to that and hope you will uh, keep me there too. But we all can and should be doing more. Uh, so that we can regret it less. I'm sure we always could have done more, but that we'll feel good about what we've done. So when you have those feelings about injustice, don't try to lose those feelings. Please use those feelings to take action to make things better. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about our feelings uh, when when we have 
we experience injustice and how we want to pay attention to those feelings. We don't want to try to lose those feelings. We want to use those feelings because first, as always, our feelings give us information. In this case, they're telling us that something is not right, something is very wrong and not okay. And then secondly, if we use those feelings, hold on to them, we can use them as the fuel and motivation to take action, to take positive action, to try to right the wrong, to make things more fair. So we wanna make sure we do that. So of course, that's very important, the feelings, but the feelings are not enough. Of course, we need to first take action. That's very important. But I also wanted to add related to the taking action is in general, the efforts that are required to try to make things more fair and more just. So to just know about what happened and then also to feel something is not enough. And very often we stop at the realm of feelings. We don't like something, we think, oh, that's horrible. This is also why people, when there's tragedies and someone writes thoughts and prayers, they can feel very uh, upset when they see that it's someone that actually can take action. If it's a politician who might be able to create legislation and laws that might change what's going on, it could feel very empty that you just have thoughts and prayers when you can actually take action. That's not enough. And so we should hold ourselves to that same standard that you can feel outraged, you might feel upset, and it's good, and as I recommended, I think it's good for us to, to use those feelings, not to lose those feelings. That's very important to do. But also, what's important is that we take some kind of action with those feelings. What I also wanted to mention in this segment was not just the action of going out and talking to politicians or writing letters, protesting, whatever it is, which are all very important. But on top of that, something we need to do is we have to inform ourselves to be better prepared and equipped to bring about the changes we want to bring or to face uh, the inequalities or injustices that are going on. For me personally, as I mentioned, reading this book, it was lengthy, it took a lot of time, but it did bring up this issue in my mind of I'm putting this time into reading this book to hopefully help arm me to, to fight injustices even more strongly than I could have before. Because without knowledge and information of what's going on, what's happening, and also about potential solutions of what can happen, we are not going to be able to do very much, or you're going to be not as strong as you can be. And so when I talk, especially to younger people, uh, I had the, the opportunity to be on a Zoom meeting with UCLA students about two weeks ago, uh, and also another student had reached out to me and we were discussing a few things. What I think is so important is that, of course, we see in this younger generation, usually they are uh, more open-minded, progressive than we are in a lot of different ways. The younger generations always seem to be. So they have this... Um, better mindset, they can even be more idealistic, which can be good and bad, but they can envision a different world and a better world, which is wonderful. But what I always tell them is to, to ha hold on to that even idealism as far as trying to bring about change to make things better, but that they also have to work really hard to do good and to think of it as their duty res and responsibility to work very hard towards good things to study hard and work hard, um, to become the best versions of themselves, first and foremost for their own self, for their own sake, but also because that's what the world needs and wants and demands of them and what the world deserves of them. 
So if you are listening to this and you're someone who can help bring about positive change that could change the lives for many people for the better in whatever way, you owe it to the world to do everything you can to make that happen, to turn that potential into positive change, to not just leave it as untapped potential. So it's not enough to just care about the things in the world and say, oh, I care about this, I care about that, my heart breaks for these people, um, and different things like that. Just the feeling, again, I emphasized in the last segment how important the feelings are, but that's not enough. If we stop there, we're actually doing a disservice to the world. And so I always recommend and encourage the youth, and it's really for anyone, to realize that it's not just up to uh, it's not just because of yourself that you should work hard it's for the world whatever it is that you do you can be an artist you can be wanting to be a researcher neuroscience and genetics uh, whatever it is that you're doing you should obviously work as hard as you can not just for yourself but the world does deserve it you can't sell the world short and so i thought of this when i read the book and when i was talking to other people to give this mindset that if we want to bring about change, we have to work really hard. To change deeply embedded structures of a society, it's not easy. There's so much inertia uh, to maintain the status quo. First of all, many people are not being affected by what's going on. Not only not affected, actually they're being affected in a positive way. So of course, if some people are benefiting from the way things are in the world, of course, they're not going to want to create change. They want things to stay exactly the same. And so they're going to be very strong in promoting that things are fair the way they are. As Thomas Piketty mentions in the book, these inequality regimes always has this ideology that explains away what seems like injustice, somehow to make it seem fair. No, this is the way it has, has to be. Or if we change things, the whole fabric and structure of society is going to fall apart. We open this Pandora's box, so we have to keep things the way they are. So to overcome systematic issues that are deeply embedded, it's always going to be very, very difficult and challenging. And to just say, I don't like it or this is not fair, is not going to be enough. In some ways it can or should be, but it's not. Uh, even when I look at issues related to, for example, uh, home, homeless people in the United States or in Los Angeles, you have to look at a way where it makes financial sense. I think this is actually a bit heartbreaking, but you have to look at that aspect of things in order to have a chance to bring about the change. To just say this is unfair, people might acknowledge it or they'll dismiss it or find a way to dehumanize the group that's suffering, and usually it just gets washed away and nothing happens. But if you can show that it can make some financial sense or there's ways to make it work, then you're more likely to bring about some kind of change or have a better chance of things changing. It'll still be hard because there's always going to be resistance to change. Humans in general, in general as individuals uh, are resistant to change, but so are societies, even though we know historically change happens. It's one of the only constants. But nonetheless, to create change can be very challenging to do, and it's definitely not an easy thing. So we have to prepare ourselves and make ourselves stronger, that the feeling is not going to be enough. We have to be armed with knowledge, with information, with understanding of the history, with understanding of the theories, with understanding of how change is brought about and how change is brought about specifically in whatever context you're talking about. So if it's economic or political uh, or educational, whatever the case may be, 
we have to arm ourselves with information, with understanding, with scholarship, with studying the issues at hand. It's not enough to just want it to change or feel that it's good to change. Uh, so I hope that if you're listening and you care about issues, I'm sure you do, you will actually work hard towards those issues and realize that, yes, I hope you won't lose those feelings, you'll use those feelings, but part of using those feelings is to take actions and making yourself stronger so that you can bring about more change. The stronger you make yourself, the more you can use that strength to help others and to make the world a better place. And in this case, when I mean strength, I'm not really talking about physical strength. I mean intellectual strength, knowledge, and understanding of what's going on and the situations at hand. So I hope you will keep that in mind uh, in whatever it is you do. And not to say that degrees matter, and by degrees I mean um, uh, you know, master's degree, PhD, they do. And I don't want to make a bias to say everyone should get educated in a certain way, but they do have an impact. So even for myself, um, I think my thinking on a lot of things, my feelings about things, my ideas, of course, have evolved since I was, let's say, 20 years old, hopefully for the better in a lot of ways. But a lot of the things I cared about, I cared about then too. I cared about helping the less fortunate, about helping children, about paying attention to injustices. I think uh, I've evolved in a positive way in all those issues, but I still cared about mostly the same things. But one of the things I had in mind when I was approaching the prospect of graduate school was that I want to go to graduate school, of course, I want to learn, I want to study, it will help me in my career and establishing myself and, and of course having an income and taking care of myself and others and also I like the work, so there's all those things of course. But I also knew that by getting a degree, especially if let's say I get a PhD, that will give me more clout in a way to bring about more change or have the potential to bring about more change because of those three letters that would be added to the end of my name. When you say, oh, this person thinks we should make a change, it's like, okay. But if you say this uh, expert in economics thinks something, it's very different, or this expert in this field. And by expert, usually you mean they have some degree, but also have studied it extensively, written about it, and whatever else they've done. So I knew that it would also give me more power, even though my feelings about those things didn't necessarily change. I cared about those people, and then I continued to care about those people or those issues. But I would be able to do more. And so I encourage you, if that is possible for you, to see how you can give yourself that also another form of armament. I was talking about information, and this is related to information and knowledge, of course, but the degrees do matter. And so it can at times give you more potential to bring about more change in the world, give you more clout, give you more power. It's not always fair. Sometimes there's people with very good ideas that don't have the degree. Um, actually, it's interesting, these things always are so interrelated. As I was mentioning before, there isn't equal access to education. So here in the United States, people of certain uh, economic backgrounds, or the lower you are economically, uh, socioeconomic status, the harder it is or the less likely it is for you to, uh, uh, first of all, have good education in the public schooling, and then even when you try to go to um, secondary and uh, tertiary types of degrees, try to go to school and uh, college and graduate school, it's going to be more challenging for you, which is unfair. So I do recognize that not everyone has the same opportunities in various ways and for various reasons. But if you do have that opportunity, I hope you'll consider adding that 
that it can allow you to bring about more positive change in the world to have a bigger and better impact if you do get that degree and regardless if you get the degree or not i hope you will consider how much you need to study and understand the topics to better inform you and then better arm you to bring about change uh, whether you have the degrees or not and then also in reading this book Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. As I mentioned, it's a huge undertaking he must have taken to write such a hefty book. So much research, so much time that is put into that. And I'm so grateful to him for doing that. As I was mentioning before, I'm grateful to the people whose books I write and who bring uh, out other types of content that help us understand things better, promote ideas in a way, um, and give us a better sense of what's going on, what can happen, all those types of things. And so it's an encouragement to all of us to produce works that will help other people. So we, we work hard in a lot of ways. You study, you might get a degree if that's something that could be possible for you, and then create the work that can help make a more just society, including writing books, giving talks, um, teaching others, spreading awareness. There's so many different ways we can do that. But again, the principle of hard work and dedicated work should be there. To write a book like he wrote, of course, it took years of hard work, um, building on years of work that he did, and then years probably to write the book itself and finalize it. And, and I'm very appreciative and grateful to him for that. But it's a reminder to all of us to put in the work to make things better. So again, the feeling is important. We don't want to try to lose the feeling. We want to hold on to it and use the feeling. But just having the feeling is not enough. We need to use the feeling to fuel action. First, the feeling tells us something is wrong, and then we try to make that wrong right and use that feeling to encourage us, to motivate us, inspire us to bring about something better. And we have to work hard. First, we have to work hard in informing ourselves, learning, uh, exchanging ideas, having debates and consultations with friends, people on the opposite side of the issue to make yourself stronger and understand the, the situation even better. Then we want to work hard in potentially getting degrees and different things that we can do to arm ourselves and to give ourselves more clout. People will listen to you more, unfortunately, unfortunately, when you have a certain degree, that's just the reality of the world. Uh, and then work hard when you even, let's say, get that degree or whatever it is to spread the good information, to let people know about the situation, to bring about changes in whatever way, that part also involves hard work. And so if we accept that there is something unfair and unjust going on that deserves our full attention, it deserves our feelings, and it deserves our hard work in trying to bring about change, which takes various forms from reaching out to politicians, to spreading awareness online and to people you talk to, to learning about the issues even more deeply, and then even creating new theories, ideas, books to help promote those good ideas to help bring about change. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I'm going to talk about a delicate, sensitive subject. I guess a lot of the topics obviously I talked about today in general on the show can be, but I think I say that because I don't want to come off as lecturing in a certain way. So I'll just get into it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier in the context of inequality, looking at the experience of African Americans here in the United States. Uh, 
uh, especially sparked by the video of George Floyd, who was killed by Minneapolis police, um, and the outrage that understandably has poured out because of that, and of course many cases like that um, in the United States that we are constantly getting bombarded with, sadly, because of how frequent they are of African Americans being treated poorly, not just treated poorly, that's a delicate way of saying being killed. Um, so they're being killed for essentially the color of their skin. And I know that not everyone that listens to this show is Iranian. Um, and of course, what I'm going to say generalizes in, uh, overall. And I want to be careful not to generalize a whole group of people, which is kind of ironic because I'm talking about racism. But I did want to talk to us as Iranians and what we experience. And of course, uh, even when I say that us, I mean us is really the whole planet. But because I can be speaking to a lot of Iranians around the world, but also Iranian Americans, I just wanted to discuss this issue of how we respond to race and racism in general and the plight of African Americans here in the United States. I think that we all have the potential to be racist and, and even to take a step further back. We all have prejudices. We all would like to think, or most of us would like to think that we're not racist or prejudiced in any way in regards to race, religion, sexuality, gender, age, but we know that that's not true. And we can take things like uh, the implicit association test, which uh, I won't get into the details, but essentially can reflect unconscious biases you have in favor or against certain groups. And we all have them. Doesn't mean you're a bad person for having them. It actually means you're a member of a society that has these messages constantly bombarding us, which affects how you feel about different groups and different people. If I tell you 500 stories about um, a p people from a certain race during doing something, you're more likely to assume they do that thing, if it's good or bad, whatever it is. And so throughout our lives, we get exposed to many things from childhood and our own families, to the culture we're in, to society, to media, that affect the way we think and feel about things, uh, which is sad because it creates so much prejudice and racism and negative things. But the good news is also that those feelings can and do change over time. It's usually not just a one moment thing, sometimes it can be some kind of big aha moment, but usually it's slowly over time. So you think people from a certain group are bad people or this and that, and then you meet some of them and interact with them and see their humanness, and that feeling can start to change. And so we all have that potential, but in certain cultures, societies, we might see different factors that can affect that. And something we notice in the Iranian culture is we have a very hierarchical structure of good, bad, who's better than whom, status is so important. You know, we care so much about family and family background and how we look to others because those things have big implications for uh, not only business and overall life success, but also marriage and who you can and can't marry and those types of things. So we're very hyper-focused on status. And because of that, we are very uh, quick to create hierarchies of who's better than whom, uh, from different occupations to different ways of being, different religions um, to uh, different even skin color within you can, it's not just about African-American or Asian versus Iranians. Within Iranians, as is the case, there's shadeism, different colors of skin will get different types of attention or uh, uh, negative attention in different ways and discrimination. 
but we're very quick to be hierarchical, which I don't want to say it's in our nature, like we can't change it. In general, we have that, but it's a big part of our culture. So we're constantly looking at that. Now, even within the Iranian culture, there's different groups. Of course, there's jokes about different groups that I won't get into that clearly reflect this as well of who's better than whom. And, and we're very clear on that. And then so what I've noticed is that Iranians in the United States, unfortunately, again, this is a huge generalization, have not always been the most favorable when it came to certain discriminated groups, including African-Americans, that we have been, I think, overall more complicit and, and uh, with the society rather than against the injustices that take place and are being experienced by African-Americans in the United States. Again, a big generalization. This doesn't mean you who are specifically listening uh, are this way or have been part of this, but that's been my experience of what I've seen myself personally. Now, uh, there's obviously a lot of factors related to that. First of all, that is just my, my own assessment. It might not even be accurate, but I'm reminded of the book, The Limits of Whiteness by Netta Mavbula, which was a great book. Um, read it in, I think it was November or December of, this, of 2019. And I was very fortunate to have her on the show to, uh, via telephone to discuss her book. And so we see this experience of Iranians in America of trying to understand their race, not just understand it, but also their experience uh, of being at this limit of whiteness, in some ways being legally considered white, which uh, prevented them from receiving some types of benefits and advantages. And then also at the same time, their lived experience being very discriminated against, not being recognized as white, being seen as different, as an other, um, and in that way mistreated as well. So that, that's where that title comes from, The Limits of Whiteness, which I think is a very good title to accurately describe that experience. But I think what's also happened is we've wanted to be more white. Well, first of all, if you're in the United States, it's very obvious you're going to have more advantages if you're white. So we've also wanted to lean more towards that white side of things or that limit to come off that way. Um, also, we have some of that shadeism already, I think, within us, so it might already bias us in that direction or make, make it so that we are pushed in that direction. And so this hierarchical type of a thing, and going back, um, there is these myths that people, uh, Iranians love to say, let's say Iran comes from the word Aryan because we are the original or first Aryan people. Um, I don't even know what that would even mean. But that's something that we hear a lot, and it's claimed as a way to say we're the original whites in a way, which uh, first of all seems to be untrue, and there's not really any uh, in the book she talked about it, and I'm not able to mention this myth of the original Aryans. Um, but even it also shows this desire to be more white because we want to be white because that somehow makes us better. And so that itself shows this issue. So there is this desire to be more white because it seems to have some kind of benefit. Now, um, with the few minutes I have left in the show, I won't get into all the uh, biological issues related to showing that these differences we think about between races are not the way we think they are. There's more differences uh, within a race than there are between races. And the superiority of certain races is something that's come up. There's a great book uh, that I talked about, I forgot if it was beginning of this year, uh, by Angela Saini called Superior, but looking at the research on race and how it's so often biased in a variety of ways, uh, but tries to reflect this 
quote-unquote scientific basis for racism that the races are so different and it's interesting because it intersects with the book i talked about today capital and ideology by thomas piketty that we try to justify injustices so in this sense using research on let's say the brain uh, or different biological aspects to show why certain groups are better than others when it's so biased so we're using that to justify the discrimination that is going on. And so we've seen that throughout the history of science even, which is supposed to be quote unquote objective, but we know that it's always going to be impacted by the biases of the individuals and the biases of the historical and societal context in which the science is being done. So the scientific method itself might be objective or promote this objective mindset, but the scientists are human beings who have biases and that still will permeate or seep into the science that they're doing. But so anyway, there's a lot that can show us that the ways we think that people are so different or better than or worse are not true. And as Iranians, I think we can easily fall prey to that. We also feel like we have to somehow show our goodness. Oh, you know, I come from this family or this type of a thing because we think that status is so important. So unfortunately, we're searching for ways to be better than others, not because we're bad people, but because the alternative is that you're worse than others, which means you're not as good, you don't get as good of uh, treatment by people socially, personally, professionally, uh, when it comes to marital status and who you can marry, all those types of things that I, I mentioned before. So there's that fear of being less than, because unfortunately we don't promote as much the issue of equal, genuine equality, that it's not hierarchical. We can all be equal, even if we're not the same. And so we're striving towards being better than. And unfortunately, I think these factors that I've described and discussed have contributed to Iranians promoting racism against African-Americans. By promoting, I don't necessarily mean in some kind of outward way, but being outspoken about it at times. I've heard it many times, my own experience of people saying things that were racist and at least put it more clearly, not being outspoken enough in the other direction, not fighting for justice, not fighting for the rights of those who are unfairly suffering. So I think there's a lot that's pushed us in that direction. Uh, again, it's a generalization and my own assessment that could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but at least whatever it is that's happened, I hope that we will think of how we can be agents of bringing about positive change. That first of all, realizing our own attachment to trying to be white in some way doesn't make sense and doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything, uh, even if they prove you're this or that. I actually don't like all this 23 and me. I think genetics is a very important field, don't get me wrong. But when people do these uh, 23 and me or try to find out their genealogy to say I'm more this or I'm more that, of course, understanding our past is important, as I mentioned in talking about this book. But I think it unduly puts more emphasis on these types of differences that, oh, my, I have ancestors from here, so that makes me more this way. Or I have ancestors from there, so I'm more like this. When that's not really the case, genes don't play out in that way. Oftentimes, you know, they use um, the genes to talk about culture, which is not the same thing. So it's like, oh, I have a lot of Iranian roots, so I must love Hormasabzi. And that's not how these things work. Um, and I wish it stopped at Hormasabzi and food preferences. People go to much greater lengths of showing inferiority and superiority between people, and that's really the bigger problem. But so this wanting to be more white is not worth anything. It is not something we should try to cling to. And related to that, looking down on others 
is not something we should at all tolerate within ourselves or within each other in the community. And a step further than that, we should do so much to try to bring about justice. So many Iranians uh, who are living in America had to leave because of persecution of different kinds or because of instability. So many of you have even been persecuted for religion or culture or whatever it might be and didn't feel safe. And so I would hope you, as I was talking about before, instead of trying to lose that pain, use that pain and those feelings to try to connect it with the suffering of people who are being discriminated against in the country you're living in now, because that's what's happening. And so I hope we could be positive agents towards bringing about more racial unity and harmony and promoting the rights of all people, including African Americans, and making sure we're not in any way contributing to the perpetuation of racism, a racist society on any level. I really hope that for us, uh, as I'm always doing, I'm speaking to you, but I'm also speaking to myself, that I hope I will do more and do what I can. Um, but because it was related to these issues and because of what I observed, I didn't want to end the show today without sharing some thoughts related to this issue on how we, uh, as human beings in general, but Iranian Americans, I hope can do even more to bring about a more just society in so many ways. Uh, but specifically today, since I was focusing on the experience of African Americans, I hope we will continue to do more to bring about more justice for all of our brothers and sisters in the world, but including our African-American brothers and sisters who are suffering here in the United States unjustly, unfairly, and it's up to us to do something about it. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. As always, thank you to Ghazale, who is in the studio, making sure I can do the show remotely. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.